Good morning, and um, glad you could be here today. We're going to continue our study through church history. We've uh, looked at the persecution of the early church from the first through the fourth centuries, early fourth century, really. And uh, we've also looked at last week the organization and leadership of the early church following the death of the apostles, and um, see some some divisions that arose early on in the church. And today, what we want to do is see how the church will respond to acceptance. We have seen how the church has responded to persecution, and uh, that they have stood the ground in many cases. Some some uh, people certainly have denied the faith and and uh, were not willing to stand up for persecution. But for the most part, God's Word was able to spread. In fact, as a result of the persecution that came within the um, the, the location of where it first was in Israel, it, it caused the, the gospel message to spread throughout the world because persecution pushed it out of that region, really. And uh, yet, throughout the world, there was still much persecution going on. The Roman emperors would often... Uh, make sport of Christians and kill them for fun and uh, see how serious they were about serving their Christ. And uh, and so today we want to look at how the church responds to relative acceptance. And this happens through the Emperor Constantine who comes on the scene in AD 312. So let me begin with a word of prayer and uh, and then we'll uh, get into our study. Father, we... Uh, look forward to learning more about how we have come to this place. We're thankful for the, the men and women who have gone before us and who have uh, stood for and even given their lives for and many even have died for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ and for the doctrine that He has has given to us through Your Word. And uh, we're thankful for Your Spirit and how He has um, inspired men of old to write down these words of yours and also to preserve them over time and to allow them to be translated into our language. We recognize that there are many places in the world that are without the Bible in their language. And so we feel honored to be able to have this resource and to be able to use it to understand you better and to serve you better. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom now as we consider the uh, the doctrines of theology that come up in early church history and that affect um, the outcome of, of the historical timeline, really, and, and um, contribute to how you are working throughout history to make your name known and to honor, uh, to see Christ honored as we seek to do this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. <clears throat> well, there's all sorts of threats that are coming to the church in the first couple centuries, both inside and outside of the church. And um, so this week we want to look at these church councils and these early church fathers that had uh, particular significance to, um, to standing up against these threats. In AD 312, there was a dramatic political change that took place when Constantine uh, was in a battle with a man named Maxentius who was his rival for the throne. They went to war, and uh, Constantine himself later recalled the story that he decided to pray for victory. He prayed to the Supreme God, and supposedly, while he was praying, he saw a vision of a flaming cross. 
And emblazoned on this cross were the words, Conquer by this. Constantine later interpreted that to mean that Christ had appeared to him and was saying that he ought to win this battle. And if you know, uh, or or as you could probably guess, Constantine's uh, army did win against Maxentius. And... um, and they uh, they executed the general and so on. And, and Constantine took possession of the capital and he vowed to serve this new God who whom he had supposedly seen in this vision. Um, the one that supposedly had given him this victory and this crown. Well, as a result, Constantine was, was thinking about all the persecution that had been going on among the Christians or uh, or to the Christians, I should say, and as a result of that, he decided that he would come up with a decree called the Edict of Milan, which was, which was, um, which came about in 313. You see there on your page. And basically, what it did was, was it uh, outlawed all persecution of Christians. There could be no longer any persecution of Christianity. And um, <clears throat> he also allowed Christians to openly serve in the Roman government. And so, in a sense, it brought a great relief to the church, as you can imagine. Um, But Constantine was far from a believer. He was a man who embraced these religious beliefs in order to gain a better political position. He recognized that he would have a greater... um, greater favor from his constituency if he adopted these religious practices and beliefs. Can you imagine a a politician doing something like that? (laughs) Happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, But Constantine did not fully understand the doctrines of Christianity. Um, He did not uh, require people to worship his image by any means in a temple or something like that, but he certainly allowed the imperial cult to remain. You remember this was a problem in the early church that, that came along with it or, or came along with the imperial cult was these pagan rituals that they would participate in. And he certainly didn't have a problem with those. It was basically a very loose sort of, of thing. The only thing he was strong about is no persecution of Christianity, but as far as what everybody believed, it didn't really matter. If you wanted to follow the false gods, fine. Uh, in fact, he, he followed after the sun god and he even identified the sun god, small g, with Christ. Um, and so he had a lot of wavering going on, switching between a uh, somewhat Christ, uh, Christian-type worldview, orthodoxy, and Arianism, which we'll talk about later, but basically, Arianism denies that Jesus was fully God. In fact, this became one of the central points in this the the 300s, the early part of, of church history. Constantine was a man with a fierce temper. In fact, he was said to have killed both his wife and his son for committing adultery, which um, the charges, we're not really sure if those charges actually were valid or not but he killed both his wife and his son for alleged adultery. Um, he was not baptized, although he would tell you that he was a Christian. He was not baptized really until his deathbed as more of a superstitious type thing that he wanted to make sure all of his bases were covered. 
and um, he wanted to make sure that he was going to be clear. And uh, after he died, the the following emperors and leaders of the Roman government wavered much like Constantine did between Arianism, that Jesus is not fully God, and Orthodoxy. And, and it was very hard to, to uh, be a part of, of that type of a government. Um, Theodius I came on the scene at the end of the 4th century and ordered the destruction of all pagan temples. And he made... Christianity, Christianity, the official state religion of Rome. So, so you would be in the wrong not to be a part of Christianity if you were under the Roman rule. <coughs> so Constantine really left a mixed legacy. In one sense, he granted relief to Christians who had been suffering persecution for centuries. And he also... Um, helped along, as we'll see later, in some of the church disputes. He helped settle some of these disputes that were going on among the churches. But he was, in his effort to try to get more power in Rome, he really laid the foundation for what is called Caesaropapism, okay? or, or Caesaropapism, which is the idea that, that the secular ruler of Rome, the, the Caesar, is also the the uh, the pope, or the, he's the head of the church. That's the idea there. Now they didn't have uh, popes as we understand them in those days, but but they did. Constantine really laid the groundwork, I believe, for this sort of apostolic succession, where the the message of the gospel is handed down, or the scriptures and authority is handed handed down through the ages through a specific man. In fact, Constantine called himself the 13th Apostle. Um, and so, uh, so he was uh, far from a missionary of Christianity. That was not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal was to gain a reputation and to build his rule, the, the breadth of his, of his rule. Well, in addition to Constantine, there were other early church leaders that I want to um, just note because I think they're important to our understanding of church history. The first is Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose was a well-educated, refined man of Rome, and he's most well-known for being the, the teacher of Augustine, of whom we'll talk about later. Um, Ambrose uh, was uh, really a part of a... a of an important part of church history in that he was now in favor with the emperor, which was unheard of in church history up until that point. Because remember, before the Christians were being persecuted by the Roman government, and now they're seated at their tables. And um, and Ambrose is one of those men. He was a bishop um, in Milan. And um, there was... Uh, there were some people who were trying to argue that it was okay to believe in this Arian worship of this false and basically adopt a, a false pagan theology. But he worked hard to squelch that sort of mindset. And um, and the early example of congregationalism that was going on is that the church voted that he uh, he would not be overthrown because all of these people who were adopting this Arian theology were trying to push him out 
of leadership, and yet the congregation, um, the congregation of churches, held him where he was, which was a, a bishop. He was a ruler over several churches there in um, in that region. The second person we want to note is Jerome. Uh, Jerome came about in the late fourth and the early fifth century, and he's most well known for um, putting together one of the greatest works in early church history, which is called the Latin Vulgate. He, this is a standard translation of the um, of the Bible, and um, it's a very good translation. Now, you probably have heard that that the Roman Catholics use this translation uh, primarily, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it was a good translation into the language. While it's not perfect by any means, it, it was a very uh, a good early translation. He he saw uh, Christianized Rome as the culmination of divine agency in human history. So that um, up until that point, he was waiting for this great kingdom of God to come onto the into the world. And when Rome basically had universal rule, um, he he felt that as a result of them Christianizing, okay, Christianizing Rome. That was the culmination of human history. Of course, when he saw that Rome was attacked in A.D. 410, his faith was deeply shaken. And, um, and he asked the question, how can the mother of nations become their tomb? So, as I've mentioned before in this class, when we look at church history, we've got to be careful about speaking on behalf of God where God has not spoken. And so, to call this secularized uh, Rome the pinnacle of of history is is a dangerous thing. The most influential and important of the fathers was Augustine. Augustine, he uh, had the sharpest Christian mind of his day, and much of our theology, political philosophy, and and ethics have been shaped by his thought. He was born in 354 in a small town in what is now Algeria, and he spent his young adult years living a sinful and um, and a licentious life, even to the point of fathering an illegitimate son by a concubine. And after years of philosophical questioning and searching, eventually it led him to search the Scriptures and to be convicted of his own sin. And here's how he recounts his own conversion. Now, when deep reflection had drawn up out of the secret depths of my soul, all my misery... uh, all my misery, and had heaped it up before the sight of my heart, there arose a mighty storm accompanied by a mighty rain of tears. And not indeed in these words, but in this effect, I cried out to Thee, And Thou, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, wilt Thou be angry forever? O remember not against us our former iniquities. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, speaking to me, and and the voice said, Pick it up, read it. So I quickly returned to the bench, for there I had been put down I had put down the apostles' book when I had left the one that I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. It read this Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. I needed to read nor no further. 
For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of a full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. When Augustine thought about his early rebellion, um, he came to understand that our hearts are restless, he says, our hearts are restless and do not rest until they find their rest in Thee. Augustine studying, studied under Ambrose, who we talked about earlier, and um, and uh, part of his pastoral du- duties caused him to look at the Scriptures very carefully to study them in order to preach them. And, um, and so, as a result, he saw a lot of the problems with the false teachings of his day. His most famous dispute, perhaps you've heard of it, is his dispute against a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was a British, British monk whose followers spread throughout northern Africa. And Pelagius denied original sin. He saw people as basically good, that when we are born, that we are basically good people. And if we have enough effort, Pelagius said, that we can actually attain perfection. Um, And since we are not true sinners, Pelagius would say, then we don't really need a Savior. We just need to be better people. And so the the fact that Christ died, the reason that Christ died in Pelagius' mind was for Him to be an example for us. That that was, that was uh, the main reason that He died, to be a good moral example. And though this heresy is an ancient one at this point, it still persists to this day. Can you think of some modern examples of Pelagian-type thought that says, that man is basically good and that we don't really need a Savior. Mark? All right. New Age, I'm not familiar. It's all relative type mindset. Right. Yep. Good. Anyone else think of something? Shows up in a lot of different places. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Right, they start with the mindset that uh, that you are okay, okay, and the reason that this problem persists, whatever problem you have right now that you're dealing with, that we're talking about right now, is not your problem. It's outside of you. So we need to figure out a way to suppress that problem when really, in many cases, the problem is coming up because of our own sin. Right. Yeah. Uh, it even shows up in churches, believe it or not. It shows up in, in the health and wealth gospel that that you're okay. You can live your best life now. And, um, and so we have to be careful with this ancient heresy. Mormonism, Christian science, other places as well uh, shows up that, that we are basically good. We don't really need a Savior. We, the only reason we need a Savior is just to look at Him as an example. Well, this was Pelagius's. Um, this was his stance. This is what he stood for, and so Augustine stood up against him, and he relied first of all on the scriptures, and secondly, he thought about his own experience as a wretched sinner in rebellion against God, who had been saved by grace. 
And he contended with Pelagius that not only was every human being born sinful, that they had original sin, but that we constantly choose to sin and that through our own effort, we can never save ourselves. The problem is not that we're floating out in, in the ocean and we just need to swim to shore. The problem is, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're floating out in the water with no ability to save ourselves. It's not the fact that someone needs to throw us a rope and we pull ourselves in. The fact is someone needs to give us life, that they need to impart life into us. And that's only a supernatural work that comes through the Holy Spirit. This is what Augustine argued, and that's why I say he's the most influential of this early period. Um, and so we can understand where Augustine got his understanding of of this position. It was from studying the Scriptures for himself and looking at himself, seeing that he was a wretched sinner and not worthy of God's grace. And, and that's the beauty of the Gospel, that we are not worthy of it, and yet God pours it on us. Augustine's greatest masterpiece is called The City of God. He argues in there that the Christians inhabit two cities. One is called the City of Man, which is our temporal residence on this earth and is based on a love for self. And then, then there's also the city of God, which is our eternal home. And we, at the same time, inhabit both cities and have to be good citizens of both. We can't be removed from the city of man um, until we die or until Christ comes. And so we have to be good citizens of both. Any questions on uh, Constantine or these early influential figures in the church. Well, um, one of the ways the church affirmed its faith from the very beginning was through creeds. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, we, do, we just believe the Bible. But it's good. I, I think creeds are good in the sense that it helps narrow down or or summarize what we believe about the Bible. Because there are lots of people who say they believe the Bible. Paul did something similar to this, that is, summarizing all of the Gospel into one phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would you turn there with me? Okay. Sometimes we demonize creeds because they have been misused. Um, but if you look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what you'll see is that Paul makes a summary of the Gospel. So it's not a bad thing to summarize things when it comes to the Scriptures. We should, we should be guarded by the Bible. We should not exalt a creed over the Bible. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I think creeds can serve what we're trying to do, what we're trying to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would someone read for us verses 3 and 4? Mike, thanks. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Alright. And then he actually talks about His ascension as well. We, we typically quote verses 3 and 4, but it does talk about His ascension. So it's really His death, His resurrection, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. That's how you could sum up the entire Gospel. And the reason I say that's a summary of the Gospel is because of verse 1. 
Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Okay, and he talks about what that gospel does. And then verse 3, he explains or summarizes what that gospel is. Now, we could argue with Paul and say, Paul, you can't, you can't summarize the gospel in that way. It's much bigger than that. Let's just say we believe the gospels. But that's why I would argue that, that it's not wrong to have creeds statements of faith. In fact, our church has a statement of faith. It has a covenant, which is basically a promise to do something. That, that this is the way, this is what we believe, the statement of faith, and then this is how we're going to act based on what we believe, the covenant. And uh, creeds are, are similar to statements of faith in that they, they announce or summarize what we do believe. Well, um, the church was, was very careful about uh, understanding, uh, voicing, putting down on paper uh, what the creeds were. And uh, we saw some of these last week when it came to baptism and the Lord's Supper and uh, church membership and guarding against error and so on. But there were other challenges that soon arose. And so the church had to help hold some councils, four councils to be specific, in the 4th and 5th century, centuries in order to resolve some of the theological matters that were not clear at that time to them. In other words, they hadn't been developed. They hadn't been uh, fully um, understood from a, from a broad, broadly biblical perspective. And so, in order to look at these, I think it would be helpful for us to ask four questions. And, th- and these are up there for you on the board. The first is, the first council answered the question, is Christ divine? Okay, is He God? Is He deity? The second council answered the question, is Christ human? Alright, so there was some argument over that. And then the third council asked, well, if He is both human and divine, then how are these natures combined? How do those work together? And then lastly, how do we talk about this? How do we describe who Christ is with regard to His human and and godly natures? Well, um, as a result of uh, these arguments that came up early in the church, they developed what, what are called councils. Now, I, I don't think there's any problem, by the way, with having councils. We know of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, or really verses 1 and following, where um, the men at Jerusalem, specifically James and, and the other church leaders of the area, come together and talk about what they are to do with regard to the, this Jewish population and now this growing Gentile population. And, uh, and so they, they held a council to talk about it. What, are the, what does the Scripture say? How should we believe these things? And so the Council of Nicaea, this first one here in 325, addressed the first question, is Christ divine? The controversy began around 318 when um, there was a great dispute that exploded in Alexandria. One of the elders there, Arius, wanted to maintain the absolute supremacy of God the Father, and in so doing, he proposed that Jesus had been created and that He had not existed eternally and that He could therefore not be divine like the Father. This is what Arius said. And so, as a result of this, the bishop of Alexandria, uh, who happened to be named Alexander, and his archdeacon Athanasius, opposed this false teaching and defended the Trinity and the Incarnation from serious error. And so, 
in 321, these um, leaders in this Alexandrian church deposed Arius and condemned his doctrine. But that just made the struggle get even more intense. Arius was a very good communicator and had a dynamic personality, and so he used his charisma to win over several uh, followers to himself, and that obviously just intensified the situation even more. Well, Constantine came on the scene. I I said he came, uh, I believe he became emperor in AD 312, so he's around during this time. This is about 321 when this is going on. And so he tried to suppress this. Remember, he's a politician. He's trying to to, to get everybody to get along so that his power can be uh, peaceful and, and he can have a good rule. And so, in order to suppress this, he wrote to these men who opposed Arius, this false teacher. But what Constantine found out was on the receiving a letter in return, he found out that this was too big of an issue for him to handle on his own. And so, he held an emperor-wide council in Nicaea, which is a northwest Asia Minor, and this council was supposed to settle the issue. Now, Constantine, as I mentioned before, was a little bit flip-floppy, wishy-washy type guy, and so he was bouncing between orthodoxy and Arianism, whether or not Jesus was fully God. And, um, and his main goal, remember, was to preserve political unity. He, his main goal was not to find out what God really wanted them to do. His main goal was to preserve his political power. Um, So, in this council, Alexander and Athanasius, these church leaders, defended that, that Jesus was the Son of God and that He was the same substance as God the Father. And they did such a good job at defending this position that they even convinced uh, Constantine that this was the right way to go, and this is what the creed. This is the creed that came out of that council. This is how it reads: We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, Light of Light, Very God of Very God, begotten, not made. Okay, so that's exactly against what Arius was saying. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made man, he suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended to heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And we also believe in the Holy Ghost. So that we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and they expand out what that means that this is God the Son because that was the argument that was out there on the table. And here's how they... uh, There's a little footnote that they put in this creed. But those who say there was a time when Christ was not or that He did not exist, He was not before He was made and He was not out of nothing and He is of another substance or essence or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable. All of these people who say those things, they are condemned by the church. Okay, so this is a very strong statement about who Jesus is and they answer this question at the Council of Nicaea, is Christ divine or we can say, is Jesus divine? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Now, Athanasius didn't just come up with these things through human reason. He studied the Scriptures. He was very 
uh, specific and, and careful about studying the Scriptures to make sure that he understood what God had said about these things. And, um, and as a result um, of these new, uh, these new teachings from Arius, he was deposed. Um, and as uh, one Christian scholar noted, Arius' appeal has not gone away. There are still current conceptions of uh, reasonable understandings of things. In other words, the fact that Jesus could be God is hard for us to understand, or we could say it's unreasonable. It's hard for us to fathom how that could be. This kind of thinking still is going on today. Arianism persists in various forms like with Jehovah's Witness, for example, who hold to this very same teaching that Jesus is, in fact, or in their mind, not God. He is, uh, he is created. And, um, and so we have to be careful about looking for reason apart from Scripture. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every unreasonable uh, claim that people make is true. You understand what I'm saying. The, the most important thing is what the Scriptures teach. So that was the Council of Nicaea, AD 325, and uh, that answered the question, is Christ divine? Any questions so far on that, Trish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, and, our, and historic Christianity would largely agree with those same doctrines. Okay, so when I say historic Christianity, I mean that's including Catholics, Lutherans, um, it really wasn't until the Reformation, which actually Lutherans, Lutherans come after that, but it wasn't actually until the Reformation that people started to deny the fact that Jesus was God. Uh, they, they had some other denials there. And one of the reasons that the early church from in the first 1,500 years of the church history, they agreed on this thing was because of the Council of Nicaea and these following three councils. They wanted to make sure that they understood rightly um, who God was and who Christ was. And um, and yeah, that's true. Council of Can- Constantinople is the next one. And, they, and the Council of Constantinople answered the question, is Christ human? Constantine had died by this point, AD 381. And um, so the consensus over the the um, nature of Christ and who he was uh, was starting to become more and more divided. And as a result, there were some um, false teachers who were coming up with the idea that Christ uh, did not have a human soul, that he was not human. And so that leads us to this next question, is Christ human? And um, the council here at Constantinople rejected this heresy and affirmed the full deity of Christ. Um, and they, they slightly modified the Nicene Creed, and here's how they, they put it. The turning point, this is how one Christian scholar observed this council. The turning point in Christian history represented by the Nicene Creed was the church's critical choice for the wisdom of God in preference to human wisdom. And human wisdom, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is really no human, no wisdom at all. It is foolishness to God. Um, and after, uh, at this time, it really marked a 
death or I, we could say a hibernation of the Arian teaching that Jesus was not God. Um, and um, trying to summarize here. I think, uh, I think that's basically all we need to know about uh, Constant, Constantinople. His, uh, he, he was very concerned about making sure that Christ was, or, or the, um, the, the council there was very concerned about making sure that Christ was human. We'll talk about this later, why it's important that Christ was human, why it's important that He was divine. Um, but these councils worked to, uh, to verify that, to, to solidify that. The last two councils, the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. Ephesus uh, was a city in Asia Minor, as you know, and it's, uh, this council took place in AD 431. The divinity of Christ, the fact that He is God, and His humanity were established but um, it proved to be an empty hope because if Jesus were both God and man, then how do these two elements relate? How can He be both God and man? And so there, there were two schools of thought that came about as a result of this question. How are these two elements related? One school of thought th- saw and emphasized the human nature of Jesus. And they held that the two natures were distinct and that they were only loosely connected. Another school of thought saw them, saw the, the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus, to such an extent that it really diminished his human nature, that he was some kind of uh, spirit being and, and only a facade, really, uh, of a human. He wasn't uh, fully human. Well, in AD 428 there was a man named Nestorius who became bishop of Constantinople. And he argued that, that neither of the two natures shared in the properties of the other. He, he couldn't be- believe that, that God could be crucified or that, as he put it, that God could be a baby. I mean, he, he just thought that silly to even, in his mind, reduce the God of the universe to a little baby or the God of the universe to a cross. That, that didn't make sense to him. And so he very well could not be, those two natures could not be related. And so as a result, Cyril, who was a bishop of Alexandria, he accused Nestorius of heresy and he, um, he basically excommunicated Nestorius from the church which was a, a um, Roman-led church. It was a government, a state church, basically. Well, at the same time, Nestorius found out that this was going on and he decided to hold a separate meeting on the other side of town with all of his followers and they excommunicated Cyril from the church. Um, so he didn't want to be outdone and uh, there were other people involved in this, certainly. But as a result, the... Um, the uh, was it the emperor? Yeah, the emperor sided uh, with the Alexandrians, the people who were from Alexandria. He basically said, listen, let's stop the arguing. Cyril was from Alexandria. And he banished Nestorius to a monastery. And he, the, the result of this council here, which asked the question, how are these natures combined, was basically, it didn't give a full description, basically answered, 
a different kind of question. That is, are they combined? And the answer was yes. That, that these two elements, that His humanity and His divinity are combined, and that's what led to this fourth one, then how are they combined? How, how do we describe them? If Christ is both God and human, then how can these fit together? Well, that led to this council at Chalcedon in AD 451. There was a man by the name of Eutychus who began to argue that before Christ became man, he had two natures. But after he became man, these two unions blended into one and they dissolved into some sort of God-man uh, hybrid. And, um, and as a result, he believed that neither neither uh, Jesus was neither perfectly God or perfectly man. It was as if he were half God and half man type idea. Well, the emperor at that time in the mid-5th century, Theodius, learned of this controversy and he called a council to settle the question. And, um, and as a result, one of the pastors in the area, or actually is a bishop of several churches, Leo, was furious and he he saw this as complete heresy that that you can't minimize the fact that Jesus is God and you can't minimize the fact that God is man through through the person of Jesus Christ. And um, one of the ways that that God providentially worked in this council is by um, it is through a horse. Believe it or not, it was um, Emperor Theodius who who believed that uh, he was going to side with with Eutychus, who denied the humanity and deity of God, or at least the full humanity and deity of God. He was riding on a horse, and the horse stumbled, and the emperor was thrown from the horse and broke his his neck and died. As a result, the new emperor came in and uh, affirmed the orthodox view of Christ and immediately called this Council of Chalcedon in 451. And as a result, the orthodox position was accepted. And um, this is how it was explained. They declared Christ to be a single person, perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, or we could say fully God, fully man, in two natures, inconfusedly, inconfusedly, immutably, that is unchangeably, indivisibly, can't be separated, in addition, Leo connected this doctrine with Christ's saving work, that Christ came so that death may be conquered. Now, now what I want to ask you is why is it so important? We spent a lot of time talking about Christ's humanity and Christ's deity. Why is it so important? Why did they spend all these years, over 150 years, in these councils, arguing back and forth with different groups of people? Why is it so important? that Christ was both human and divine? Let's ask the first one. Why is it so important that Christ was divine? Bill? It was so he could save us. Okay. had to be God, and when he died or else, it wouldn't do no good. Okay. So, in order... Let me, let me um, just give you an example. All right. What would it mean to you if I died for your sin? Hey, I'm, I'm imperfect. What would that mean to you? Nothing, right? I can't give you an infinite atonement for your sin because I am imperfect. In order for the infinite God to be satisfied, 
then Christ had to be God in order for our atonement to be to be an infinite payment in order for the atonement to be infinite. Jared? Right. Right, because then we would have a... Right, you'd have to go against Deuteronomy 6.4 which says that the Lord is one. The Lord our God is, is one. There's one Lord. And... Uh, I guess we could say we're, we're talking more about the sacrifice and its, its benefits for us, and that is true. But also, Christ had to perfectly satisfy His Father, and He could only do that if He was perfectly righteous. If He were a sinner throughout His life, then we couldn't take on His righteousness. Okay? We, we, may be aton- we may have atonement for our sins, but we couldn't take on His righteousness unless He lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. And the only way that can happen is if He were fully God. Now, why is it important that He's fully man? Because God can't die. Exactly. Okay? God is spirit, and spirits don't die. And so, in order for Christ to die, He had to become man. Okay? Now, I hope you understand that He was not man for all of eternity. He was a person for all of eternity. That means He had a mind, will, and emotions. He was a person. But he didn't become man until he were, was born, until well, until he was uh, conceived, really. And um, but now he remains a human for all of eternity. He is our interceder. And so, while uh, these councils may be a little bit dry when it comes to all these different names and cities and and um, false teachings, maybe not see how they relate fully to us. We have to understand that it is very important that we hold to the same truth that these councils were seeking to affirm. That the Scriptures are clear that Christ is both fully God and fully man and He had to be in order for us for Him to die for us and to make payment, make atonement for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ and we're thankful for His uh, the grace that comes through His perfect life and perfect death. We did not deserve it in any way. We deserve nothing but Your wrath. And uh, we're thankful that He provided full atonement. And we are amazed at, at His grace. May You continue to pour out Your grace upon us as we seek to live for the One who died for us. We pray in His name. Amen.